Са два гора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход в том подъезде, как в поместье проживает черный кот. Он в усы усмешк прячет темнота ему, как щит все коты. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. In every podcast, my co-host Kevin Rothrock or I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Stephen Collier about his book, Post-Soviet Social, Neoliberalism, Social Modernity, Biopolitics. Pipes matter. That's right, pipes. Anyone who has spent time in Russia knows that the hulkish cylinders that snake throughout its cities are the lifeblood of urban space, linking apartment block after apartment block into a centralized network. But pipes are more than tentacles that form the Russian social state. As Stephen Collier argues in his post-Soviet social, neoliberalism, social modernity, biopolitics, their physical organization act as structural impediments to neoliberal reform. Drawing on Michel Foucault's lectures on biopolitics and neoliberalism, Collier demonstrates that the intransigence of the mundane innards of the former Soviet social state, pipes, wires, budgets, apartment blocks, bureaucratic routines, and social norms, require us to rethink our standard narratives of neoliberalism as everywhere and behind everything. Rethinking the actual implementation of neoliberalism in Russia's turbulent 1990s takes Collier to the provinces, specifically the mono-industrial towns of Belaya Kalitva and Rodniki. There, Soviet post-war urban planning networked industrial development, population, and social welfare with the factory as the central node in what Collier calls enterprise-centric social modernity. The factory served as the Khazayan, from which radiated cities' utilities, schools, healthcare, and cultural centers, planned according to measured norms of allocation and output. But what happened when the Soviet Union collapsed? How did reformers decouple Russia's integrated social welfare from its economic production? Surprisingly, Collier finds that despite neoliberalism's tendencies toward privatization and monetarization, the relics of Soviet modernity forced reformers to preserve basic aspects of the Russian social state. For more, here's my interview with Stephen Collier. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Uh, welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thanks for joining me to talk about your book, The Post-Soviet Social, Neoliberalism, Social Modernity, and Biopolitics. It's great to talk to you today. Well, just to start off, why don't you tell me uh, about yourself and how you came to write uh, this book? So I'm trained as an anthropologist. I did my graduate study at UC Berkeley. I worked with primarily Paul Rabinow and Iwa Ong, who are obviously not um, people whose research focuses on Russia. But I also worked with Alexa Yurchek in anthropology and Michael Burvoy in sociology um, and some various other people around the university. Um, who work on Russia. For the last eight years, I've been at the New School in the Department of International Affairs there. Um, it's an interdisciplinary program, a number of interesting people working on Russia, um, including Nina Khrushcheva, who's my colleague. I came to this project um, based on sort of my, my graduate school interests, which really arose out of a literature that I guess was just, as I think about it, was just um, sort of taking shape when I was in graduate school 
which was sort of an anthropology of the modern state, modern planning, social welfare. So some of the uh, important books were Jim Ferguson's book, The Anti-Politics Machine. Rabinow's French Modern was, for me, um, a really important influence. Jim Holston, another anthropologist, wrote a book on Brasilia called The Modernist City. And so this was sort of a, a growing anthropological literature on these topics. And I guess I had sort of two interests that guided my entry into Russia, as it were. The first was that the absence of the Soviet Union from the story that was emerging from this literature was really striking. The Soviet experience was obviously, you know, the, the great example for many, many experiences of development planning, urban planning, um, and so on, you know, beginning the 1930s and in the, the post-World War II period. So I really wanted to try to bring the Soviet experience into this emerging literature to, to take up the questions it was posing with respect to the Soviet Union. The second question that I had uh, had to do with a funny issue of timing about this literature. So the, the books that I just mentioned to you all dealt with experiences of what I would sort of call classic post-World War II um, social planning and economic planning. I guess Rabinow's book is an exception, but it finishes with this uh, French general plan after World War II. Um, and, you know, these books come out in the, the early to mid-1990s at a moment when this, uh, these paradigms of planning had been critiqued for decades already. So in some funny sense, this was a literature that was dealing with a way of thinking about planning that was receding into the past, or at least had been severely critiqued. And so I wanted to ask, you know, what comes next? And obviously neoliberalism was <laughs> one of the, the frameworks in which people were trying to uh, ask that question. So that was sort of my conceptual orientation as I entered the Russian field. And then I guess one other thing that may be helpful to add in situating the book is that in part because I was an anthropologist, I felt a certain pressure not to try to define the project in terms of this, you know, big historical study, which is would, would be impossible anyway, but to find some kind of site of experience, a sort of ethnographic uh, space in which it would be possible to pose these questions in a more uh, restricted, but maybe more precise way. And so I landed on small industrial cities for that reason. Um, and the, the rationale was simply that, as you know, as everyone who's looked at these things knows, um, the small industrial city was this sort of ideal form for Soviet planners. It was thought to be a space where you could adjust industrial development, social development, the development of a population in a way that would sort of avoid the pathologies of urbanism and industrialism under capitalist circumstances. And so I thought that it would be a good place to study Soviet social planning, but also a good place to study the neoliberal reform of the products of that planning. And so I ended up working in three cities. Um, two made it into the book, which were Bilaya Kalitva and uh, Radniki, which is in Ivanova Oblast. I also worked in a little settlement called Poikovsky in northwest Siberia, which was a, um, an oil boom settlement. 
and for a variety of reasons, it didn't make it into the book. But these cities were sort of the, the part starting point for addressing these broader conceptual questions. Yeah, I find it interesting that you do uh, focus on provincial cities rather than, say, the central cities, because I would imagine that one of the keys to Soviet development in the post-war is to build these provincial industrial towns to absorb any kind of urban um, mobility, like peasants or collective farmers moving into the city rather than going to, you know, Moscow or St. Petersburg, which is the traditional case. Right. I mean, and there's some other... um, rationales for it. I mean, one is that obviously Moscow and St. Petersburg have been studied a lot. So, you know, there's plenty of stuff there. They're also just much more complicated. Um, you know, if you if you sit down with a plan of Moscow, you know, read the books on the planning of Moscow, and it turns out that the planning never really caught up with practical developments because there were just so many different kinds of pressures on Moscow because it was the center, as Ken would put it. Um, so there was also a way in which in these small cities, you could there was a kind of distillation of this project in a way that I think would be hard to find in a place like Moscow or Petersburg, where just the pressures on development and the layout of the city and so on were so much more complex. Well, let's, I mean, you, your book also has a, a, a very um, large uh, theoretical apparatus or very important theoretical apparatus. So why don't we stop, start by kind of defining some key, th- key terms of that apparatus. Um, so if you could briefly explain um, what is a new neoliberalism, um, governmentality, and biopolitics? Okay, so these are, these are huge questions. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I don't think that the book pretends to answer them in a definitive way, um, so I couldn't do that right now. But let me try to say something that might at least be helpful for our discussion in each case. So first, governmentality. Um, this is obviously a technical term that Foucault proposed in the late 1970s. And it's interesting that he used it less than one might think, given how much talk there's been around governmentality. And actually, I don't use it all that much, um, in part because I think that the discussion of governmentality has moved in a sort of funny direction that I I don't really follow. But as I understand Foucault's reason for introducing it, it marks a concern with the kind of reasoning that's specific to political government, that is to say the state. Um, And there's there's a lot to say about (laughs) why that's an interesting Um, sort of conceptual frame or an interesting way to uh, orient inquiry. But I think one thing that one could say about it, which relates a bit back to this literature that I was mentioning before um, on the anthropology of planning and so on, is that it's a way of thinking about government that doesn't take the objects and aims of government as pre-given. In other words, it assumes that there are different ways of defining these objects and aims, and that one actually has to, so, so it doesn't start out with the question, you know, how do state and society interact with each other? It assumes that society is a particular kind of way of constituting the object of government. It emerged at a particular moment. It's not something that's just been sitting out there waiting for social scientists to discover it all this time. And so it's, it's an investigation of the way that governmental reasoning and the objects and aims of government constitute each other. That's sort of a language from 
um, science and technology studies, which I think it has some um, relationship to. So biopolitics, I think, can be understood in part in relationship to that definition of governmentality. This is another technical term from Foucault. It's been the subject of a lot of fancy theoretical discussion, but actually I think that it can be understood in fairly straightforward ways that aren't so complicated. Foucault was interested in the idea that if, you know, around the late 18th and early 19th century, there's a very significant shift in the way that government was conceived. Previously, he said in the you know, absolute monarchy, government was conceived in juridical legal terms. People were governed as citizens. Um, that's, that's too broad and there's more to say about it. That's one side of the schematic contrast. Then he says, beginning in the, in the early 19th century, you find forms of government that work on social, economic, and biological life of individuals and collectivities. So I think he's actually pointing to something that various social theorists have recognized. Um, I, in the book, I point out that Foucault's analysis on biopolitics converges quite a bit with Karl Polanyi's argument about the discovery of society in early liberal thought. Um, what Foucault adds, I think, to a number of other historians and social theorists who have recognized something similar is an entire analysis of how new objects of government and new techniques of government were constituted, um, the specific forms of knowledge, government practices, and so on. This is totally absent from Polanyi, and I think it's something that Foucault provides in a really powerful way. So finally, neoliberalism. Um, uh, again, I, you know, I, the, the aim of the book was not to offer a definitive definition of neoliberalism, but it was definitely to intervene in sort of common and widespread understandings. And so let me introduce a contrast that at least lays this out initially, and then we'll probably have opportunities to talk about it more. Mm -hmm. A lot of work on neoliberalism has assumed, obviously, that it's a doctrine that marks a return to a non-interventionist philosophy of classical liberalism. So you just let markets work things out, or there's a slightly more sophisticated variant that's sort of a constructivist understanding in which, um, in contrast to classical liberalism, a neoliberalism has to create the institutions required for markets to function. I don't think that's totally wrong. Um, I, think, I think there's a lot to that. I think the constructivist distinction is important, but I think it misses a lot. And one way that I've come to think about neoliberalism is as a specific response to the rise of the social state. That is to say, a response to the rise of a state that intensively manages economic and social life for various reasons and toward various ends, including to you know, ensure the health and welfare, welfare of populations. And my view is that the neoliberals saw the rise of the social state as constituting a very serious challenge to the principles of classical liberal thought, the way the classical liberalism conceived how economic and political life ought to be organized. But they didn't actually oppose the social state as such in, in the sense of wanting to go back to a status quo ante. 
Um, instead, they, they tried to find ways to reconcile the principles of classical liberalism with the reality of the social state. And I think they tried to do that both in a practical way and in a political philosophical way. And that's the aspect of neoliberalism that I tried to explore in the book. So this, this is what leads you to um, your, your dissatisfaction with, say, David Harvey's analysis, which kind of sees it as just a, a philosophy of privatizing the social and, and unleashing, just merely unleashing market forces. Or even Naomi Klein's kind of more populist disaster metaphor where, you know, a space is destroyed by natural disaster or economic devastation and they move in, or war, and, they, and, and neoliberals and their agents move in to create, recreate the world in their own image. Right. Well, absolutely. And I guess there are two things to say about um, the contrast I'd want to draw with authors like that. One, as you say, is a, is a substantive contrast. In other words, um, whether it's Klein's disaster capitalism or Harvey's, you know, twelfth um, synthesis of the, the capitalist dialectic or what, whatever number we're on here. So substantively, I, I have a different idea about what neoliberal doctrine is all about. I guess the other thing that I'd want to say, um, which I emphasize quite a bit in the book, um, that contrasts my approach to theirs is more on a methodological level. How it is that you specify neoliberalism in a field of inquiry. So in their accounts, neoliberalism is this, you know, sort of amorphous, massive, omniscient, omnipresent um, force that, you know, you can, whose, whose operation you can sort of find everywhere. And that, that's exactly what they do. I mean, Klein's book is amazing for this. You know, it just kind of um, here, here's another example. Here's, a, here's something totally different. That's also an example of neoliberalism. Yeah, it's almost conspiratorial. Definitely conspiratorial, although in a certain way you don't even need the conspiracy because there's just uh, – it's, it's sort of so pervasive that um, it's just operating everywhere without anyone actually coming up with a conspiracy. But So what, what I really um, tried to do in the book, and this is somewhere in uh, – Another area in which I think Foucault helps a lot is to figure out ways to specify um, in, in a field of inquiry, when you say you're studying neoliberalism, what is it that you're studying exactly? And one of the things I took out of Foucault, and particularly from the lectures of the late 1970s, is this focus on neoliberal thinkers. In other words, concrete individuals concerned with how one revives uh, reconceives the principles of classical liberalism in light of present developments. And as I said, one of the, the present developments being the social state. So that means you actually have to go find, uh, you know, define who it is you're talking about exactly. And once you've done that, you can trace out sets of connection from a thinker to reforms to their dissemination around the world and so on. Um, such that it, it, neoliberalism becomes one thing among other things in the field of inquiry rather than everything. Now, the other thing that you kind of bring in, and this really concerns me as a Russian historian, is uh, the application of Foucault to Russia. Because in, in Russian historical debates, there is this kind of back and forth in terms of those who see some advantage in, in using Foucaultian analysis, particularly on sub issues of subjectivity and understanding of like the new Soviet person. And then there's an, another side, I think, which was kind of put forward 
best by Laura Ingolstein is that Foucault is unapplicable because Russia never developed the proper juridical apparatuses to kind of develop a self-disciplined society. Um, but you actually, your use of Foucault is something that I think is quite new um, and, and, and somewhat unprecedented in, in Russian historical studies, and that is the idea of biopolitics. Um, how, how does uh, uh, this kind of Foucauldian biopolitical analysis uh, fit into the history of Russian economic modernization? Well, first of all, let me say that I think your read is exactly right. And it's not just that most of the work on Russia that draws on Foucault focused on this very particular moment in his work, in a particular set of questions. Um, but actually, that's more generally typical of the American reception of Foucault. Been overwhelmingly focused on discipline and punish and the essays and lectures on power knowledge. And I, I do think, and I've published on this, that the, the picture that we get of Foucault's thought on government and on power based on the lectures that have been very recently published in the late 70, from the late 70s, recently published in the late 2000s, um, first decade of the 2000s, but from the late 70s, um, give us a very different picture and a very different set of analytical tools. So I, I think that the distinction that you're drawing is absolutely right. I've never understood this, this issue of applicability when it's raised with respect to Foucault. It's to me like asking whether Weber can be applied to Russia. And you read Alexander Gershenkron on old belief or Ken Jowett on uh, charismatic impersonalism in Leninism, and you just realize that it's the wrong question. It's, a, it's what you get from Weber is you get some concepts, some distinctions, problems that motivate a study. And to me, that's what one should take from Foucault. In other words, it's not that he offers a theory of power or a theory of how capitalism works or doesn't work or a theory of the modern individual. It's that he motivates a set of questions, offers you a set of conceptual tools that you can then use to examine cases that he didn't study, which mm -hmm. <laughs> presumably what we should be doing with it, not trying to figure out whether he had the absolute last theoretical word about power or anything else. So for me, the category of biopolitics just opens up a problem or a question. Um, what were the circumstances in which the conditions of existence of the population became an object of governmental concern and intervention? In Britain and France, Foucault tells us um, this is a story that's wrapped up with the liberal critique of classical monarchy, or in France, the sort of proto-liberal physiocratic critique um, it's a critique that's at once political and economic. So what were the equivalent circumstances in Russia? I don't think that's a question of applying a theory or not applying a theory. It's a question of um, identifying a, a problem about the way that modern societies and mo modern polities are organized and you know, trying to raise an equivalent set of questions for a new case. And so where, would you, what were you, where does it kind of fit in this history? Because in the book, you kind of trace looking at um, urban development and economic modernization from Peter really up through the imperial period to the Soviet. So how would you kind of place a kind of biopolitical analysis to understand that modernization differently? Well, uh, I guess the question is differently with respect to what? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian and I wasn't doing historical work, so my my purpose was not to uncover something um, 
and change everyone's mind about the way uh, we should think about Russian history or Soviet history. I think that the distinction that this sort of conceptual apparatus really um, brought into relief for me was a distinction between the way that Tsarism deployed certain technologies of power and the way they were deployed in the Soviet period. One of the, the things I talk about quite a bit in the book is that in the Tsarist period, beginning with Peter, you have a whole series of efforts to promote modernization, industrialism, urbanism, the creation of new cities, the creation of garrisons, and so on. And these all involved mobilizing populations, um, getting populations into these new locations, creating new conditions of existence for them. Um, you know, these city factories involved creating an entire little urban milieu around a factory. In some ways, it's a precedent for the small cities of the Soviet period. But what's really striking to me about Petrine and post-Petrine development is that those kinds of experiences are always circumscribed. They're always within a broader context in which the institutions of classical power reign supreme. So it's still about not just autocracy, but also about a strengthened set of surf institutions. Um, there's a fundamental conservatism with respect to, you know, rural institutions. They're consistently strengthened rather than weakened over this entire period. So there's a way in which, you know, th these are experiences of in attempts at state-led industrialism or urban urbanization that are always within uh, a, a broader attempt to kind of preserve social order, if it, as it were. And what strikes me about the Soviet experiences being totally different is not that it was more violent or more coercive. I mean, maybe it was, but that's not the, the, the question I'm interested in. But that it, this inhibition is suddenly, has suddenly vanished. And so now you have an attempt to promote state-led industrialization and urbanization combined with an attempt to completely remake the conditions of existence of the population, their economic activity, um, the, the mechanisms through which needs are satisfied, and so on. And to me, biopolitics is a very useful way to think about that. In other words, in the first instance, you have um, some attempts at industrialization and urbanization that are circumscribed by classical power. In the latter case, you have a real biopoliticization of the project. In other words, uh, a governmental effort to transform the life of the population. Yeah, I mean, this is a, an interesting distinction that I was reminded of, is, and that is um, the, the population in the Soviet case as another... It's, it's, it's like a... Um, I don't know exactly how to characterize it, but it's this unleashing of the population. It's this allowing movement rather than in the SARS period, where, as you said, they're trying to, they want, want to modernize, but they don't want to let the population loose. That's right. They're, they're trying to keep it fixed. They're terrified about make, letting the population loose because there's this constant specter of peasant revolt and then later specter of urban revolt. Um, Polanyi has this wonderful phrase, uh, obviously in reference to Britain, where he's talking about, you know, the end of the old uh, manorial regime, and which is 
initially replaced by these acts of settlement, which bind people to the parish um, after after the manorial regime, regime has collapsed. And then the acts of settlement are repealed, and there's this great freeing of populations. And so populations are suddenly freed to move around the country. Um, and so I think that you're right. It's precisely the sense that these institutions that have been binding people to the land are suddenly loosed. And the difference, of course, is that in the British case, they're loosed and reorganized by markets. That's, that's the classical liberal conception, right? That there's markets are the natural law of population. They'll redistribute population, among other things. Um, in the Soviet Union, there are other institutional mechanisms for this reorganization. Now, one of the, the key moments um, that I found particularly interesting early on in the book um, in the Soviet uh, infrastructure development occurs in the late 1920s when uh, teleological planning wins out over genetic planning. Now, what are teleological and genetic planning and why are they significant to your story? So these are both ways of thinking about a greatly expanded role for government in planning collective existence. And the way that they were distinguished from each other was not just by the amount of intervention, but by the nature of intervention um, and the nature of the constraints on intervention. So genetic planners argued for an expanded, but I would say modulated intervention. And what I mean by modulated is that it was limited by certain facts of the social and economic environment in which it operated. And as you know, in the 1920s, these were things like the level of agricultural production or the peasant consumption of manufactured goods. These were thought to be you know, the constraints on state-led capital accumulation, industrial development, and so on. And this was genetic planning in the sense that it understood these constraints by looking at past patterns, so tracing things from their genesis or their origins, and projecting their future tendencies. So there's a kind of series that connects the past and the future. The state can modulate that series, but it can't ignore it. It can't transform it entirely. So there's something like social processes, we could say, um, that the state has to honor, respect, understand, and work within. Now, teleological planners saw elements of the environment in a very different way. They simply saw them as raw inputs that could be reshaped by government. So there are constraints in teleological planning, but they're not imposed by the regularities of social and economic life. Um, they're imposed simply by the amount of stuff that there is to rearrange. So how many people do we have, or working age people, do we have to insert into new industrial enterprises? Um, how much iron or coal do we have for industrial processes and so on? So it's teleological in the sense that it's directed toward a telos, an endpoint that's imagined by the planners who can then rearrange things as they will. Um, it's interesting that some of the literature, on, I mean, obviously there's been a, a tremendous amount of work on the planning debates of the 1920s, from classic studies like Ehrlich to, to a lot of more recent stuff. A lot of the literature, curiously to me, has concluded that this was kind of a silly debate because any form of planning necessarily has genetic and teleological elements. And that's probably true to some degree. But it's interesting that that way of thinking about it sort of elides what a fundamental difference these two positions marked out in thinking about what Soviet government was 
and what kind of objects it worked on. In very simple terms, from my view, the genetic planners still aim to govern society in the sense that, you know, liberalism had defined it, this reality that is external to the state, it has its own laws and regularities. Teleological planners um, come up with a very different proposition. They essentially say, look, Russian society failed, so we're not governing society anymore. We're governing things in their immediate materiality. The state is going to do the things that society did in the British case or other cases. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in, in, in what you, you, you show is that there, the, the division between state and society is actually broken. I mean, there is no division, I should say, that society in, is just part of the plan. It's, it's, as you said, it's another um, input that you use. So if you want to industrialize or build a factory here, then you mobilize elements of society to that end. It's just another lever that you have on part of the state. That's right. Or, or maybe it simply isn't in this case. You know, in the, the revisionist school of Soviet topology, um, you know, Stephen Cohen et al. et al., in the 1970s, the counter-argument to totalitarian theory was in part that, in fact, society was not totally dominated. In other words, society was active. There were interest groups. Um, there, there was a lot more going on than just planning or central administration. And I want to make a somewhat different point here, uh, not a point that begins from the state and society and says, well, was it all the state or was society partly active as well? but simply to say society was not the object of government. Um, so that's a somewhat different point of entry. So was the object of government, and this, this is based on, on my reading of the of your book, the, the, the object of government was almost, it, it, to, to, in some sense it reminds me of a kind of socialist realist vision that they're working with, or a utopian vision that they're trying to reshape the Soviet Union um, in that, in that image to a large extent. That's right. It is utopian in, or, I mean, teleological in that sense. Um, they have a vision of an endpoint. But again, I want to emphasize the idea that there were constraints and it involved its own kind of meticulous knowledge in principle of the elements that were available to work with. Now, there are a variety of reasons why not just in the 1930s, but for decades after that, the Soviet regime was actually very bad at collecting the kind of knowledge that would have been required to do good teleological planning. And they were also bad at developing the kinds of sophisticated planning techniques that would have been required to do it rationally. So if you you kill a lot of your mathematicians and many of others go into exile and help the Americans for the war... Uh, you're not going to have the kind of mathematical talent you need to be good planners, and if you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but nonetheless, I do want to emphasize that it's not utopic in the sense that there's a principle of reality there. It it does create a way of knowing about the things that you have to have to work with. It's just that that lens is not society. It's not the social sciences. It's not that enti- the entire range of knowledges that we're familiar with, economics, sociology, and so on, um, for knowing about collective existence were not the knowledges that were relevant to teleological planning. Hmm, I see. I see. Now, at, at some point you say that this 
total planning gives uh, Soviet Russia its illiberal but biopolitical character. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I think that in a certain way, this refers back to this, the earlier conversation that we were having about what makes the Soviet Union uh, biopolitical as opposed to Tsarism, which was not biopolitical. Um, you know, th this was the form through which the economic life and the, the conditions of existence of the population became a political problem, was this form of total theological planning. I think the, the illiberalism of it is something that barely <laughs> needs explanation. Uh, you know, again, to refer back to the sort of take on this, uh, which focuses on countries with a strong liberal tradition like Britain, you have this sequence, which is erosion of feudal institutions, this great mobilization or freeing of populations, which move to industrial centers, and then the emergence of new problems of urban life that require certain kinds of governmental intervention. And so in Soviet Russia, this entire sequence is posed by and through institutions of total planning. So there isn't ever a question of, you know, sort of unleashing society to behave according to its own laws and then organizing some kind of modulated intervention into it. The entire thing is, in the first instance, a project of the state to be organized by the state. Now, you, you emphasize that Soviet planners, in, in coming up with the total plan, um, reworked two key concepts of liberal social modernity, population and norms. Uh, talk about these a bit and how they figured into a Soviet city's substantive economy. Okay, so in answering this, I think I'd want to back up a little bit and introduce a, a really key term in the book, which is city building, it was the, the Soviet paradigm of urban planning. Um, in, in some ways, I think it's really the protagonist of the book. Um, and what I try to do is situate city building in relationship to teleological planning. So once you have the decision to take, undertake state-led industrialization um, and to reorganize the national population around sites of industry, which is essentially the decision that was made in the late, the late 1920s, you need some mechanism for building livable human settlements around these new sites of industrial production. There's been a lot of work on the avant-garde discussions of architecture and urbanism in the 1920s about the creation of a new Soviet per person. But it's somewhat striking that, you know, that by the early 1930s, the discussion in urbanism and architecture had really shifted to this other set of problems. It's not about creating new men and women. It's about planning the substantive economy of Soviet cities. And that's, that's received much less attention for whatever set of reasons. I think it's partially because architectural historians um, and ur urbanists, historians of urbanism are sort of fascinated with these great efflorescences of avant-garde thought and this, these more mundane moments aren't anything. Um, but anyway, that, that's what I focused on since I am interested in the mundane operations of government. And the, the key problem for Soviet city building was to create a new substantive economy, um, a new chazyaistva, another key term. Um, and so the, when we think about, when, when I was thinking about population and norms. It was how they were deployed in this project. In other words, this pro project of city building, um, whose aim was to create a new substantive economy in, in Soviet cities around 
new industrial enterprises. So back to the question of population norms. Um, so in liberal thought, and here you can refer to Foucault, Polanyi, Stephen Holmes, Emma Rothschild, any number of people, population, again, was this autonomous field with laws and regularities that are external to the laws of the state, the, the juridical legal order of the state, rates of birth, death, disease, health, patterns of economic activity, wealth and poverty, so on. Um, the regular and, and law-like character of these phenomena is in some ways the great discovery of early liberal thought. So first of all, in liberalism, population is a reality that's external to and distinct from the state with its own laws. And the norm emerges in this context as a kind of statistical concept. It indicates how certain kinds of phenomena are distributed over the population, disease, rates of poverty, and so on. In Soviet city building, population is not an autonomous field. I mean, it's, there's some autonomous elements. There's a concern with a natural rate of growth of population, for example. So you care about a birth rate and a death rate. That's not planned. It's external to planning. But otherwise, population is simply an input to planning. In other words, it's just a number of individuals who work, who acquire certain facilities or services to satisfy their needs and so on. Um, and as such, it's the basis upon which all other elements in a city have to be planned. In other words, you, you start, actually, you start from industry. And uh, in a certain way, industry gives you a target population size and a certain structure of population. And then from the population, you move from the new substantive economy. The norm, meanwhile, has nothing to do with how phenomena are distributed over this population. They're just quantitative ratios between elements. So meters of how square housing per person, for example, classroom units per student, heat output per person, and so on. And so beginning with a population that has a certain structure and using these norms that are just ratios, you effectively derive a plan for an entire substantive economy. And if you look at these city building plans, which are usually located in some municipal office, there are enormous documents Often they're kept in some safe somewhere. They probably used to be considered secret. And in some cases, they are. In, in northwestern Siberia, I could never get my hands on the plans. Um, but in any case, you can see that this is the logical movement through which the plans were constructed. Um, the only way that they imagined the future was in terms of this complex of interlocking norms. If you look at what's going on in city planning in the 1920s and 1930s in the U.S., for example, you see... There's a totally different story, a completely different way of thinking about the future, um, of, of a completely different way of thinking about the relationship between the planner and the environment, I guess. Now let's turn to a bit to your where you did your uh, field research, and, and first to the monotown of Belaya Khalifa. Um, how does Belaya Khalifa embody what you call the enterprise-centric social modernity of Soviet urban planning? So Belaya Khalifa is a town on in the northeastern part of the Donbass, which is the, the great coal basin um, on the, the Russian-Ukrainian border. Um, there's some coal mining around the central city, mostly gone by now. Its major enterprise during the Soviet period was an aluminum factory that was connected with defense aviation. Um, in Bilya Khalifa, uh, the, the enterprise was, it was actually begun after the war. The city was occupied. I think most of what was built was before the war was destroyed 
and then it was resumed after the war and production is rolling off the lines by the early 1950s. There's a city plan completed in the early 1960s and from roughly the mid-1960s to the late 70s, you see the development of all the apparatus of Soviet social modernity. So the, the typical features that anyone who's traveled in provincial towns in the Soviet Union is familiar with. Multi-story apartment blocks, centralized infrastructures, social services, parks, and so on. So the, the, enter, the, the enterprise centrism of cities like this has been noted for a long time. William Taubman's book um, on urban government, which has a lot to say about small cities, was published almost 40 years ago. So this isn't at all a new story. Taubman focuses in particular on um, sort of administrative aspects of this enterprise centrism. In other words, the way that enterprise managers dominated urban administration, and the fulfillment of the plan, and so on. I guess I was more interested in some less noted aspects um, of enterprise centrism that are material, that are more on the level, again, of the substantive economy of the city. So just to provide one example of what I have in mind, a lot of urban infrastructure in small cities was constructed by enterprises, um, water and heating systems, things like electricity were a little bit different. And the key facilities for these systems, such as heat boilers, were often located physically on the grounds of the enterprise, and in fact, were often built in the first instance to serve the needs of the enterprise. Um, so you have to imagine not just that the enterprises were powerful and that they had a lot of administrative influence on the city, but that there's an entire substantive economy that kind of radiates out from the inter enterprise pipes, but also the stuff that goes through the pipes, hot water, steam, drinking water, and so on. Um, and as such, it was not just the, the kind of material center of the city, but also a point of articulation between city economy and national regimes of coordination. Obviously, one of the implications is that reform of this system is pretty difficult. It was very easy to say in the early Soviet period, post-Soviet period, you know, let's pass some laws that detach social services from the enterprises so that the enterprises can just worry about being profit-making ventures and the local government can worry about providing social welfare. But when you have these kinds of entanglements, that kind of unbundling isn't very easy. Yeah, I actually had a, um, your, your discussion of this reminded me of an instance I had when I was doing research in Rezan where in the, the family I was living with lived near a factory. And one of the things they told me is that, you know, during the Soviet times, the factory was responsible for picking up the trash, cleaning up the environment, the parks around the city, around the, their neighborhood. And now since the, the factory has basically gone under, nobody deals with these issues anymore. Um, the, the factory was kind of the center of, of or for providing the, the, the um, the uh, resources of social life, you know, culture, clubs, also parks and maintaining them and things like this. That's right. The, as you know, the Russian term for this is chazyain. Exactly. Uh, the takes care of the chazyaistva. And during the Soviet period, the chazyain was the, the head, the, the, the general director of the city-forming enterprise in these small cities. And so when that position collapses, whether be, it's because... The enterprise itself collapses or because it's purchased by, you know, some private investors that see things very differently. Uh, 
people felt like the cities were kind of, their city was left without a hazyain. And so in the post-Soviet period, you constantly saw these articles in the paper that said, who in the city is the hazyain? As I say in the book, one answer in the 1990s was no one. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Now, let's move to that experience of the Soviet Union collapsing, because I think it really does explain why, even today in Russia, a lot of um, redundant enterprises are still kept running, because they, if, if you basically close the factory, the population around it doesn't have heat. Um, and this creates a major political problem. Yeah, definitely. And that, that's something that people have written about. Stephen Kotkin has some wonderful stuff on that, on his book in on Magnita Gorsk in the late Soviet period, David Woodruff writes about that as well. Um, and so I, you know, I think that that was a dominant phenomenon during the 1990s when there was this really massive industrial decline. And um, in important ways, the, as you say, the, the enterprises almost continued to function as social welfare agencies when they weren't really functioning as industrial enterprises. I think the situation changed after the devaluation because a lot of the enterprises that experienced this just extraordinarily dramatic collapse recovered. And so, you know, things changed again. But absolutely through the 90s, you saw that picture a lot. So what happens in a town like the other town you worked in, Rodniki in Ivanova province? Um, what happens to, to the population there and its, and its relationship to the substantive economy after the Soviet Union collapses? Right. So... Rodniki is an interesting case. It was it's a it's a textile town, and like a lot of towns in that region, it emerged in the 19th century as a kind of rural industrial settlement. It wasn't really even a city in the the late part of the Tsarist period. Um, a lot of the workers were itinerant laborers; they didn't even live in the city itself. And you know, through the course of the Soviet Union, the Soviet period there actually isn't a lot of industrial transformation. It enters the, the Soviet period as a mono-industrial textile town, and it leaves the Soviet period <laughs> as an industrial textile town. But what does change is that you get a city that's built up around this town with all the sort of accoutrement of a Soviet city again. So in the, when the, the Soviet Union broke up, the textile industry was among the industries that collapsed really fast. And one of the reasons for that was that it was dependent on the Republican supply chain. So they got the cotton from And the Uzbeks immediately understood that uh, sending their cotton to Russian enterprises that couldn't pay for it was not the best way to maximize their return. And there's a stunning collapse in Radniki. By the middle of 1992, there's a, work, a complete stoppage at the enterprise. It's amazing. You know, so just the industrial... Um, heart of this town, which has been, you know, an, uh, an industrial enterprise that's been functioning for over a hundred years, just comes to a screeching halt over the course of a couple months. And there, you, then you have a typical situation during the 1990s. Maybe it's an exaggerated form, but it's, it's typical of, of these small cities. On the one hand, there's a massive drop in, in employment at the enterprise. The continuing employees aren't getting paid. Tax payments collapsed, so to the extent that the local government provided services, which it did in some areas like education, uh, you know, it becomes dependent on transfers or just goes massively into arrears. 
On the other hand, what was what was interesting, and this gets back to your your prior question, is that certain aspects of the substantive economy continue to function, even if in a somewhat reduced form. So the apartments still get heated, though not not always. You know, you have to wear a sweater inside, but they're heated nonetheless. It's not negative thirty in the, in the department in the apartments on cold days. Water flows. Teachers don't get paid, laid off, though they're not paid in some cases, but schools continue to function. Um, so you have a very nice example of, of what Michael Burrovoy and Catherine Verdery wrote about um, in the late 90s, these sort of examples of self-protection of society in the face of market forces. In Radniki, as I, as I mentioned, something curious then happened, which is that after the devaluation, the enterprise was bought by private investors and all of a sudden they could compete on cost because um, the terms of trade shifted so dramatically um, and the enterprise recovered. But during the 1990s, it was very interesting to see how this substantive economy was kind of a shock absorber. In other words, when the, when the industrial economy collapsed so dramatically, there, there was indeed this kind of safety net um, that people could rely on, even, if, even though it worked in very funny ways. In your discussion of, of the reform of, of these cities, and the re, especially the reform of the substantive economy, um, you, you rehabilitate um, two, I say, forgotten uh, neoliberal economists. I mean, I certainly had never heard of them before, uh, James Buchanan and George Stigler. Um, talk about them and their significance to uh, post-Soviet Russia. Yeah, well, they're, I mean, they're certainly not forgotten economists. Um, these guys are Nobel Prize winners. They're they're very prominent. Um, they don't they don't need my, me to rehabilitate. <laughs> sure, they're doing, doing just fine. <laughs> Their reputations are doing just fine. Um, and you know, I, I certainly didn't go into the field thinking that my goal was to rehabilitate them. I didn't really know. I mean, I knew who they were, but I certainly didn't have any inkling that they were going to be connected to my work in in Russia. Um, Instead, I was kind of led to them by my field work in small cities, and I guess that needs some explanation. So I was looking at, I wanted to focus on reforms, as you say, that were relevant, relevant to this persistent substantive economy of, of Soviet cities and post-Soviet cities. So reform of the budgetary system, communal infrastructures that got a lot more attention in the late 1990s and in the 2000s for reasons that we could talk about. And I guess I simply wanted to ask the question of whether there was any meaningful sense in which these reforms were neoliberal. And so I set out to do something kind of ridiculous, and this is obviously after fieldwork is over. And I say it's ridiculous because it was already a complicated book, but I felt like this is what I had to do to, to really make neoliberalism relevant or fail to make it relevant, which you know I could have... I found out that neoliberalism wasn't relevant. But what I discovered was that actually the styles of reasoning that you could find in budgetary reforms or infrastructure reforms could indeed be traced back to Stigler and Buchanan. Um, Ways of thinking about the social state that, I I don't want to say that they uniquely invented it, but that they were very influential in shaping. Um, So there's a lot to say about what exactly they, um, they sort of bring to these discussions. But let me just point to one distinction that uh, is relevant to the way that I understand neoliberalism. 
So as I mentioned before, the vast majority of work on neoliberalism has understood it as a reaction against the social state, an argument that social welfare protections have to be reduced, that one has to return to liberal principles of small government, self-reliance, free enterprise, and so on. Um, I think you can cite thousands of examples of, of scholars who just, without really thinking about it too much, understand neoliberalism in that way. Now, in Stigian and Buchanan, I thought I found something different, particularly in their early work, which is to say work in the, from the late 40s through the, the 1960s, let's say. So both of them began from a concern with the increasing government involvement in providing for the health and welfare of citizens. And both thought that this development, as I mentioned before, challenged classical tenets of liberal government, but neither uh, advocated a return to the world of the 19th century uh, when government did not take on these functions. Rather, I would say that both began from the reality of the social state. And I mean that in two different senses. First of all, I think both simply acknowledged that the social state was here to stay. They thought that there was an, an ethical consensus around various things that the social state does. They also thought that in a complex interdependent industrial society, there were a variety of functions in which that markets simply couldn't fulfill, that had to be fulfilled by government. They accepted that. Um, so th the idea is that liberal thought has to adapt to this reality of the social state. Second, I think they were concerned with the reality of the social state in the sense that they were concerned with its practical workings. So what are the effects of government program? Um, and in the second respect, I think they opened up both a philo political philosophical critique and a practical critique. And so the first, the political philosophical critique, raised a number of questions such as what values should government in its social state functions pursue? Um, who benefits from those functions? Who ought to benefit from those functions? How do we think about concepts like social justice when we're talking about the social state? Uh, the practical critique developed through what in the book I call a microeconomic analysis of government. So rather than seeing government as a unified entity that produces value for the public or acts in the public interest, um, they tried to understand the effects of government from a microeconomic perspective. So what are the interests and incentives of those individuals who worked in various parts of the state apparatus? What are the interests and incentives um, of those who were affected by government programs? And how do they try to influence uh, the activity of government in various ways? That's just a very quick sketch, but I think that the, the schematic contrast may be helpful in indicating why these guys pointed to a way of thinking about neoliberalism that was really different from sort of received conventional wisdom. Now, you say that in your um, discussions of uh, neoliberal reform in post-Soviet Russia that you're interested in the mundane, you know, budgets, pipes, wires, apartment blocks, the things that, you know, most people don't consider when the real efforts of reform take place. Um, right. Let's just do talk about one example, pipes. You say yeah. it, you have a, a title at one point that's just Pipes Matter, yeah. um, <laughs> which I really like because as you say, everyone, anyone who goes to Russia and spends any time in a city is inundated with pipes. Yeah. Big, right. big, large pipes, you know, in your face, along the sidewalk, etc. 
how do pipes why do first why do they matter and then second how do pipes prevent the unbundling of a uh, russian social infrastructure right so i guess what um again for people who haven't thought deeply about russian heating systems which is uh, um inexplicable but i i think there's some people who haven't no most uh, of us just say you know in october sometime the heat goes on <laughs> right exactly <laughs> Or complain that it hasn't gone on yet. Exactly. <laughs> or off. <laughs> or, or that it's, that the hot water has gone out in the middle of the summer for cleaning or whatever. Exactly. Um, so I, I guess it just bears saying very quickly, um, so these are Russian urban heating systems are these massive integrated systems. A single boiler serves a whole city, may serve both industrial and residential needs. That was certainly true in the small cities where I worked. Um, the Radniki textile manufactory actually worked on steam-powered looms. So the boiler was initially built for the enterprise, and it was only subsequently extended to apartment blocks when the apartment blocks were built. When, when the boiler was initially constructed, there were no apartment blocks and no central heating in the city. Um, the technical setup of these systems was kind of interesting. There were norms for indoor temperature. This was part of the planning system. And so... The, the way that they were designed, they only had a single centralized adjustment to pump more or less heat through the system in relationship to outdoor temperature. So in this way of you know, planning a heating system, you don't need individual controls in the apartments. You don't need to meter individual use. And you certainly didn't need a way to turn individuals off, as it were, <laughs> if they didn't pay. And in any case, as you know, tariffs during the Soviet period were very low. So payment and non-payment wasn't really an issue that, that was very serious. And since, for the most part, there was full employment, um, th th those kinds of problems just didn't arrive. So in the 1990s, um, the, as part of these social, social welfare reforms that I mentioned, um, responsibility for, for providing heat in small cities was transferred from enterprises to local governments. But, of course, what could this actually mean in a town like Rydniki, where the enterprise owns the boiler and uses the majority of its output for its own industrial processes? What it means is that instead of the enterprise paying for the heat that is provided to, or subsidizing the heat that is provided to apartment blocks and so on, that the municipality actually has to pay the enterprise to do the same thing that it's been doing all along. So the problem, of course, is that this is the precisely the moment when you know, local government budgets are collapsing. They don't have the money to pay for heat. This certainly isn't a situation where they can turn around to the users, i.e. residents of apartment blocks, and say, sorry, guys, we need to triple or raise by a factor of 10 your, your tariffs because there's massive unemployment, the enterprises and paying wages, and so on. But at the same time, it wasn't possible to turn the thing off. Um, first of all, because you can't you know, turn off individuals for non-payment, and you certainly couldn't turn off the entire municipality because on one cold winter day, the entire heating system would be destroyed. So in the 1990s, you have a kind of amazing situation in cities like Radniki. On the one hand, municipalities can't pay for heat, which they have to purchase from enterprises, which also happen to be the biggest taxpayer. 
And most of these enterprises can't pay taxes or they're unwilling to pay taxes and they're hiding their cash income. Um, so what they would do is they'd offset taxes against heat. And so you have a barter economy that accounts for almost the entirety or offsets. It's not exactly barter because it's not stuff for stuff. It's stuff for tax debt. Um, but, you know, this was more than 50% of local budget in Redniki in the 1990s was heat offsets on both the revenue and the expenditure side. It's an amazing situation. So they're right? essentially paying taxes in kind. That's that's right. There's an offset of heat for um, for tax debt. And the reason that this works, of course, is that Gazprom, meanwhile, is not imposing hard constraints on the enterprise and keeps delivering gas to the enterprise, even though they're not paying Gazprom. And in any case, tariffs were still subsidized. So you have this entire system um, of, you know, in which hot water is re-articulating these relationships between the population, the local government, and the enterprise that the reforms were supposed to pull apart. Um, they're supposed to unbundle these relationships, but it turns out to be very hard. I mean, if anything, the infrastructure itself, I mean, it's a, a, a material impediment to, you know, decoupling, say, not just an apartment building, but an actual individual apartment from this system. Because, like you said, there's no meters. Uh, there's no way to um, calculate the use of heat by individual apartments because the infrastructure just isn't there. That's right. And you know, there are ways to re-engineer these systems to work differently. You can, you know, double pipe and install meters and install shutoff valves, but that's extremely expensive. For the most part, it isn't done. There's some new developments in Russia in which, of course, you do have metered heat because it's a ridiculously inefficient system. I mean, as you know, you know, if it gets warm enough, then people regulate by opening their windows, or if it's too cold, everyone turns on their ovens and their stoves and just opens them up. These are not efficient ways to use limited resources in a country where not everyone has a lot of resources. Uh, but, but it's just very expensive to make it work differently. Now, one thing that's interesting is that the reforms, um, you know, there was all this big talk about shock therapy 2 or shock therapy 3, whichever it was, when they were talking about communal form, reforms, as though there was going to be this sort of grand marketization of heat systems. And there are even these World Bank documents in the early 2000s where they talk about the communal sector, i.e. heat and other urban services, as being the last sector of the, of the Russian economy that's not made a transition to a market economy. But what does it mean to marketize one of these systems? And you actually dig into these reform proposals, either the government proposals or foreign proposals like the World Bank proposals. And what they're proposing to do is extremely modest it's these you know, very, very marginal uh, reforms around the, the, sort of the, the, the outskirts of this system that don't really change its fundamental logic. So let's uh, you know, create competitive tenders for maintenance contracts. Let's raise uh, the tariffs to cost recovery levels and then have more social protection and more, more targeted social protection for poor people. But in terms of, you know, transforming the basic structure of supply and demand, even reformers realize there's little that they can do without really massive investment to essentially re-engineer these systems. Your story, I think, really provides a, um, a counter-narrative to what 
the usual story we're used to. And that, that usual story is this kind of all-powerful Washington consensus backed by, you know, in various international institutions coming into Russia with the young reformers and basically manipulating and running roughshod over the Soviet, former Soviet economic system and basically privatizing everything. You know, this is the story of the 1990s and the oligarchs and all of this. But you're really, and, and looking at the mundane, providing a different narrative. So considering your your different narrative, um, how should we understand neoliberal reform in Russia? Well, I, I mean, I don't want to say that I'm completely... Um, I, I, I think there, there are two kind of arguments that I could be making, and I, I want to make a, a clear distinction about which one I am making and which I'm not making. One would be to say, you know, that old story is completely wrong. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's completely wrong. I think that a number of things that are misleading about it. I don't think that the reformers were ever that powerful. Um, ben Lim Ganyev has a very nice article from a couple of years ago on this topic. Um, I don't think that it's very clear that the Washington consensus was an embodiment of neoliberal reform. In fact, I think there's a very clear case to be made that it wasn't. Um, John Williamson has made this argument himself. I don't think that structural adjustment is a neoliberal policy. Um, but that said, I, I do think that there is, you know, in, if you think in more general terms about what neoliberalism is as a, an orientation to, uh, you know, market organization of as much of an economy as possible, of a certain way of thinking about transformation, I, there's something right about that story of the 1990s. And, you know, if you're looking at those changes from the perspective of small cities, it's impossible to deny that. You know, this was an utterly crushing shock for people who lived in these cities. Um, it did destroy the economic heart of these towns, at least for that period. Um, so this kind of Polanyian image of markets versus society or substantive economy, as I, I prefer to put it, that's not totally wrong. But, but I do want to introduce some different images and exemplary cases that allow us to think about neoliberalism in a number of different ways. I, I think that's the way I'd want to put it. So at least for critical scholars, um, it, you know, neoliberalism has been confined to this Polanyian sort of epical clash of markets versus substantive organization. Um, but if you think about an alternative image like pipes, where you have this massive inherited structure, it's intransigent, it's not going anywhere, and the neoliberal reforms sort of, as I said before, pick up around the margins a little bit. They try to do some adjustments here and there. They try to make it more efficient. But, you know, the neoliberal transformation is a much more modest thing. And the post-transformation structure that you're left with is one in which, you know, the dominant feature is really the thing that was produced by Russian, by Soviet social modernity. This system of pipes, the apartment blocks that it connects the city located in a certain place where this heating system is located. So it's just, it's an alternative image and it points us to different parts of the neoliberal canon, different concerns of neoliberal thought. Again, it's not a matter of saying that the other picture is completely wrong, but that we need some alternatives. Well, I, if anything, it provides a, a far more uh, an addition to that picture because, you know, 
in my reading of a lot of the transformation in the 1990s, it's incredibly centralized in terms of, you know, the, the elite structure, the government level, and, and even Mos focusing on Moscow. And here you're at least providing some voice for what happens, say, in these places in, in the provinces. For what happens in the provinces, and also I would say um, for forms of neoliberal reflection that aren't these kind of high drama uh, macroeconomic privatization kinds of issues, but that are nonetheless really important for the way that people live in Russia today. I mean, you know, the, the fact that this substantive economy persisted through the 1990s and the fact that neoliberalism was not actually a program for destroying this substantive economy, but reforming it seems to me fundamentally important. You know, it was a, it was a traumatic, a crushingly traumatic time for many, many people. Um, and, and, these systems were one big part of an explanation of why people made it in, in a very a, a very raw kind of <laughs> uh, sur- survival sense. You know, it's a cold country. You can't live without heat. That's just, it's just a biological fact. Uh, and so I, think, I do think that there are a number of reasons why drawing attention to these more mundane systems is important. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating book, and, and as a historian, it actually gave me a lot of reflection and, and- things I didn't actually know, um, embarrassingly enough, about the urban planning and development in the post-war period. Um, just, to ra- just to wrap up, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that's, that's good to hear because I, w- I was mostly worried about historians who would have very much very high expectations about the, the, de- the level of detail and how, how rapidly I pass over certain things. So it's, it's good to hear that from a historian. Well, I think historians will certainly will you know focus on the 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 details or the absence of details. But I think the theoretical the apparatus that you use um, really promotes a lot of interesting questions. I mean, you know, instead of thinking about the details, the kind of structure that you provide um, is is quite helpful, at least for me. So, so uh, just to wrap up the interview, what are you working on now? Well, not Russia. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> over the last years I've been working on a project on contemporary security with a, uh, in part with a colleague, a sociologist named Andrew Lakoff. We've been interested in the emergence of sort of new kinds of governmental rationality around the anticipation and management of catastrophes. And it, so this is very far afield from my work on Russia, although there are some surprising connections and one that is sort of amusing is that it turns out that in the United States, the, the history of governmental efforts to manage catastrophes is all wrapped up with the most important American experience or experiment, I should say, with total planning, which is the War Production Board during War One. Um, and I'm actually planning on writing an article with an, another colleague, a guy at Columbia, a sociologist, that will be called something like the secret, the secret history of total planning in the United States. A lot of these broad, the broad themes about governmental rationality um, that came out of my work in Russia are, are still very much present, even though I'm not working on Russia. Hmm. Well, I look forward to that. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. I've been speaking with Stephen Collier about his book, Post-Soviet Social, Neoliberalism, Social Modernity, Biopolitics. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Gillery, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And until next time, goodbye.
От того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо блампочку повесить. Денег все не соберем, 